If you ask an American about the Civil War, they'll tell you the story that every American knows well, about the young American nation, the divisions of the North and the South, and the emancipation of one in eight Americans who lived their lives as black slaves. That war cuts deep in the American memory, and it is a critical piece of the story of America's identity that we continue to grapple with in the 21st century. In contrast, the story of the English Civil War is quite different and instead of the American Civil War, it actually sounds something like the American Revolution. The story is about a country under the rule of a tyrant king and the public who must choose between loyalty to the sovereign or a more progressive type of democratic representative government. The English Civil War took the king of the time, Charles I, and threatened his life, literally against the chopping block. listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 52, The English Civil War. This episode is one in a larger series about the English Revolution. Before listening, check out the previous episodes about Bloody Mary, Macbeth, and the Gunpowder Plot. All right, Race, getting to know you question as we move into Thanksgiving this week. And I guess when this gets published... It'll be a few days after Thanksgiving at this point, so our listeners will have had a chance to recently consume the meal. But my question is, from the traditional Thanksgiving spread, is there any dish on there that you would happily delete from the list? Okay, so you asked me this in advance so I could think about it, and I have two answers. My first instinct answer was green bean casserole that's like I've, i almost always end up having it at my thanksgiving tables that i'm at and it's fine i like it it's not a problem but it's definitely not my favorite and it could easily go away and i would be fine with that but the second answer that i realized controversially for me turkey turkey faced <gasps> with another um, there are other replacements that are perfectly great. Like a few years ago, we had a Thanksgiving where um, for some reason, the turkey situation went south on us. I can't even remember what happened. And we had to have ham. And that was a perfectly okay. wonderful Thanksgiving uh, with a nice spiral ham. So I'm, I wouldn't be too sad if the, if the turkey disappeared as well. Very hot take. Yeah. I, I appreciate the take, though. Yeah. Not everybody is brave enough to say that, I think. <laughs> I mean, I love turkey. I'm just, if you told me we're not having turkey, we're having ham this year, I would say, mmm, ham. Good idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a great answer. Uh, myself, I think, I also look at that green bean casserole and think, what are you doing on this table? I don't, I don't know that I want you here. Sometimes, though, it can be good. It kind of just depends, I think, on the recipe. Mm. I don't really love canned. You know? Yeah. But I do love those little crispy onions that you put on top. Oh, so. yeah. Gotta love those. I may be, I could be swayed there. Um, but also, I think, and I hate to say this because they are so integral to the dinner 
but I never really want much of the sweet potatoes mm. because we've already got a root vegetable on the table. Right. <laughs> to have another one, we are, we've already got mashed potatoes. What are those sweet potatoes doing there? I don't know. Maybe that's the fun of Thanksgiving is like eating all the starch possible in one dinner, but I never want more than one bite of the sweet potatoes. Yeah. Though to be fair, that one bite with marshmallow on top is really a nice thing. Yeah. So. I will say I actually don't come across legit sweet potatoes in my Thanksgiving meals that often. Oh, and that's I, not in your spread. You it often isn't and I think it's more of a southern thing like with the with the marshmallows like, on top and stuff and like brown sugar. It's basically mm-hmm. a dessert. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I'm I'm not surprised that you you seem to have it, but I yeah, it's been a while since I've had that. What do you think about the Thanksgiving desserts? Well, so um I am an equal opportunity employer when it comes to desserts. I love all desserts in any at any time of year, in any form that they come, in pretty much any capacity, I love dessert. <laughs> and um so a traditional pumpkin pie, absolutely. Any of the other fruit pies, I love it. Um, that's typically what my family ends up doing is we just have a whole like a pie buffet, like six or eight different kinds of pies. And uh, that's pretty close to heaven for me. So that's mm-hmm. generally what we end up having. And I completely love it. Very tasty. Yeah. I love the classic apple pie, although I feel like that gets a little neglected sometimes at the Thanksgiving table because yeah. pumpkin and pecan pie are in, you know. But See, I pecan pie is another I one that I don't pie. come across that often. I feel like maybe as a You know what? That, I'm exposing my Southern heritage here. <laughs> yeah. But definitely one that we always had. Um, and I feel like chocolate pies typically, right? Mm, Those get yeah. caught in. I'll eat a chocolate pie. It's a decadent meal. I'm personally thrilled to be eating it this week, and I mm-hmm. can't wait. All right, so we're continuing on in our series today about the English Revolution. At the start of this little series, we talked about how Wikipedia points you to two different events that could technically be considered the English Revolution. One of them is the Glorious Revolution of 1688, which we are going to talk about in our next episode. That is traditionally considered to be the English Revolution, but a more recent school of thought within the past 20 or 30 years has taken up this other event as also being kind of a revolution. And that's what we're gonna talk about today, and that's the English Civil War. Um, The English Civil War ended with the King of England at the time, Charles I, being executed. Spoiler alert. (laughs) And Charles I, by the way, was the last monarch of England to lose his head, last monarch of England to be executed. And if that's not the Dundee's office award trophy that you would like to receive (laughs) I don't know what you're aspiring for because (laughs) because that's a nice little thing to have on a plaque most recently Uh, beheaded most recently beheaded right yeah Yeah. 
so our question today going into this episode with the English Civil War is why did they want to kill Charles I? Why did his own people rise up against him and say, this guy does not deserve to live? So this conflict can be traced back to, it's got, it definitely has its roots in James I, who we talked about last time. James I almost was assassinated in the gunpowder plot. Um, and he was married to a woman named Anne of Denmark, and he had several children. And in our last episode, um, we talked about how with his assassination, we're going to take James out, and then we're going to put in his daughter Elizabeth on the throne. And then, you know, we talked about also his sons Henry and Charles and what's going to happen with them after James gets assassinated. Of course, none of that happened. But the story of his son um, Charles he um, takes over as king, and that was kind of a surprise. And part of that's because Charles was a sickly child, and he was the second son. And so he actually stayed in Scotland when James and the rest of the family went to London to get crowned and live there. He was kept back and left with like protectors and a friend and um, because he was so unwell. And by the time he was able to walk the length of the great hall of the castle that they lived in in Scotland, um, by himself, unassisted, he was that was deemed like a sign that he was strong enough to be brought to England. So he was an, an unhealthy child, and he had an older, uh, a kind of a strong and um, popular older brother. So he was never going to be king, and um, so he was kind of out of the limelight. He remained a feeble child. Um, he did eventually overcome that and became like a strong man and was a good um, fencer and kind of skilled in the art of war and all that stuff. Um, but his speech was slow to develop as a child as well. And even into adulthood, he spoke with a stammer. And um, then everything changed when his older brother, Henry, um, who was the going to become king as the oldest son, died. Disease that can't quite be agreed, agreed upon, but some sort of an infection and died. And so all of a sudden, Charles looks like um, the next in line. He ends up taking the throne in March of 1625 when his father, James, dies unexploded. And, um, <laughs> and so part of, part of the issues that we're going to see are going to come up is that Charles clashes with Parliament over and over and over and over. And there's some really interesting and like um, really catty details that comes up in his clashes with them. And part of the reason that Charles was having these problems with Parliament, and even James, his father, was also having similar issues, was that these were Scottish kings. And the English Parliament viewed Scottish kings with a little bit of distrust because, so first of all, they're coming in to be the King of England, but they're coming from a different, a different culture with different kind of values and a different legal system. And so while, yes, you're ruling over our country, you know, kind of the way that they approach things was very different. Um, and Tyler, you pointed out having the Magna Carta in the legal and kind of cultural history of England made English kings kind of view their role as more subdued. There are certain lines that, that the English monarch can't cross. We have certain level of respect for the landowners and we've got kind of a, an, a, an understanding about what that's going to be. Whereas Scottish kings didn't come from that heritage. And so they were viewed, you know, fairly or not as being more, um, 
you know, a little more out of control. They're more apt to, to um, cross lines and seize power. So there was already kind of a, a built-in assumption against these Scottish kings um, just because of where they came from, like I said, deserved or not. And so... And re- remember that England at this point has had 400 years with Magna Carta. You know, yeah. King John was, what, 1215? Yeah. So... They've had plenty of experience getting the kings used to having to listen to a governing body. It just didn't happen that way in Scotland. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's as much history with Magna Carta as that's older than the entire history of the United States. Right, yeah. So, it you know, we can kind of compress time and think about all these kings running around. But Magna Carta had been around a long time and a, a lot, you know, a lot of precedent had developed around it, certainly by this time. And so... Yeah, very interesting to think about that. And the Scottish kings didn't have it. So they were kind of viewed with um, with some suspicion coming in. So we could probably just title this whole section Clashes with Parliament um, for the <laughs> Life of Charles. And this happened even before he became king. So there was religious trouble brewing in the Holy Roman Empire right before Charles became king when he was just the heir apparent prince and his dad was on the throne. Um Trouble in the Holy Roman Empire. If you've ever heard of the defenestration of Prague, this is going on at this time. That was they were literally chucking Catholic governors out of a window in what is now the Czech Republic. Um, And that conflict was an issue because Charles' sister was married into high levels of the Holy Roman Empire. The man she was married to at this time um, would actually eventually briefly be the king, um, the Holy Roman Emperor, King Frederick V. And so that was kind of the family connection. And then Parliament also was worried about this. Yes, it's over there kind of in the Eastern countries, but um, Europe is increasingly connected as the centuries go on. And the conflict, Parliament was worried that it would, and it eventually did kind of spiral into an intercontinent or into a a war that overtook the whole continent, um, which we call the Thirty Years' War. Um, English Parliament was worried about this. So they're like, okay, Catholics and Protestants are really clashing over there in the East. Um, We're worried about this. So as a result of that tension that's going on, James is like, I have a great idea. Let's marry um, Charles off to a Spanish princess. That way, our kind of, um, you know, Protestant way of doing things, our Protestant kingdom can be melded with the Catholic kingdom of Spain and, you know, we got a nice little Romeo and Juliet thing going on, merge these two royal families as kind of an olive branch and a way of diffusing the tension, um, which is an approach that appeals to me. I kind of like the sound of that. You could see how that might um, stop people from wanting to declare war against each other and kind of cool tensions. Um, Parliament was not happy about this idea. They were like, we do not want some... Um, Catholic person coming in here to be, um, you know, sharing the throne and the marriage didn't end up happening. You can go read about on the, the wiki page about Charles the first um, about kind of the negotiations. And they were like, well, we'd actually love for you to marry a, a Spanish princess, but you're obviously going to have to convert to Catholicism. And he's like, well, that's not a great idea. That's kind of not what we were going for here. And so when he came home without a princess, He was personally embarrassed and the kind of royal family was embarrassed because this was the scheme. But Parliament and the people were overjoyed. They're like, great, he didn't go and kind of marry down into some, you know, Catholic nonsense. 
So by this time, James is very old. James is the king, but Charles is basically reigning in his stead. He has advisors that are working with him. And because James is just the king in name, but so old that um, Char- Charles is basically in charge. Like the beloved 80s sitcom. Charles and- <laughs> Scott um, Benton, right? Is that who I that think, is? I think so, yeah. Um, <laughs> he comes home princessless and is kind of personally embarrassed and actually wants Parliament to war on Spain for not swiping right on him, for lack of a better term. And mm. Parliament is like, we're not going to do that. We are not going to declare war on Spain because they didn't want to marry a Catholic princess into our royal family, which we didn't want to do anyways. We're very glad this didn't happen. Um, and so before he, and so that did not end up happening. And Charles was like fuming at parliament and trying to get people kicked out. So even before he was king, Charles already has his beef going with parliament. Uh, Charles eventually did get married. He was married to a woman named Henrietta Maria, who was Catholic and from France. They were married um, by proxy when she was 14 years old and their proxy marriage in, in France took place outside the Notre Dame Cathedral. So like the heart of European um, Catholicism. And then eventually- Does that mean that they weren't together? Yeah. Cool, huh? Did That's somebody stand it. Like, yeah, um, I remember I took a family <laughs> law class and you can actually still do this in Seriously? some states. Yeah, I'd have to look at like the specific thing, but let's say like, I think the idea of it is let's say somebody is, you know, in been sent off to war and they want to be oh, married. Uh-huh. So like you could have your, you know, a, a family friend or like your brother stand or in for your long like lost whoever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you can be married like over the phone with another person standing. Wow. Yeah. I think at the time they probably did it just for practical reasons. Like you guys just hurry up and get married in, by proxy over there in France yeah. I'm not going to see you until like the snows come or whatever, you know, like it was <laughs> until the river. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, I threw that in cause I thought that was super interesting, but their, wow. their proxy um, ceremony took place in front of the Notre Dame cathedral. And um, so he marries uh, Henrietta Maria, a nice Catholic French lady. This, as I'm not surprised, as I'm not, I'm sure you won't be surprised was not popular. People were worried that this was going to lead to him, heaven forbid, taking the boot off of the neck of Catholics in England, you know, like withdrawing all of this stuff that had made James so unpopular with the Catholics and had almost ended in his assassination, which he kind of did end up doing. There was a lot of like loosening of, you know, let's quit harsh in the Catholics mellow so much. Um, but, you know, all was, was not well necessarily because when he was crowned, his wife was like, I am not going to attend your coronation because it's a Protestant ceremony. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. So even in this attempt to like, we'll marry with another Royal family, which was common practice, but we're specifically like trying to find a Catholic Royal family to marry with, to kind of ease tensions. Um, even that didn't, didn't super work. Um, and in the long term, his relationship uh, with Henrietta Maria did sour along with relations with France so their marriage and international relations sour. There was bad um, military action against France, which you can go read about. There was like, we must protect the Huguenots, which were kind of a religious minority in France. And so he sent his armies against his wife's family's nation and it didn't go well. And there was like kind of a, a string of things that didn't really go well. He um, militarily um, 
he had there were some tax issues that I won't even begin to get into, but about colonies and all this stuff. And um, so just one thing after another, he was not doing great. He was very unpopular with the people and the parliament. Um, if there had been like approval ratings at the time, his would have been quite low, um, which they didn't didn't necessarily start that way. He started kind of being people were suspicious of him, but it quickly, quickly plummeted. And this all kind of culminates in what is called the 11 years tyranny. So in 1629, Parliament comes back into session um, and Charles gives a speech to mark the occasion, kind of like the event that his dad was almost blown up at, just kind of like a restarting of Parliament, but slightly different. Um, and he gives a speech addressing some of this stuff that he's being unpopular for. And, you, you know, you can picture a politician today. I mean, our current president is not doing super well in the polls. And so you'll see them kind of like, well, I got to get out there and you know, rally the troops in some way, or like, you know, if my poll numbers are down, you want to remind them of any victories you've got. So he kind of addresses this, some popular tax that's going on and is like, you know, don't be so down on this. There's actually whatever he's, he's doing his very best. Um, and that didn't go over super well. And then later he ordered that the legislative session at the parliament end on a certain day. He's like, all right, so this is when parliament needs to close down. And Parliament didn't want to do that. There were factions in Parliament who were like, we're not going to listen to the king. We've got things that we want to um, literally like something we want to say on the floor of Parliament before the final gavel is banged. I don't know if they had a gavel, but I imagine that they did. Um, and several members of Parliament physically wrestled down the speaker like into his chair so that he couldn't uh -huh. stand to adjourn Parliament. And while they were like, it's instead of a hold up, it's like a hold down. So during this hold down, <laughs> some of these members of parliament, these MPs stand up and are like, we have a bunch of anti James things to declare on the floor of parliament. And it was greeted with great applause. They're like, his taxes are dumb. He's supporting these dumb religious laws that we don't like. And he's married to a Catholic and we don't like any of that. Um, Wait, it's anti James. Anti Charles. Sorry. Anti anti Charles. Oh, okay, gotcha. Might as well be anti-James, though, right? Because they were similar, Same deal. similar, yeah. similar sentiments. But yes, anti-Charles. This is when Charles was king. Um, so Charles is angry. Not only has he been disobeyed, he like ordered that the legislature, uh, that the session end, and then it was kind of disobeyed. His order was under his order was intentionally disobeyed, but it was disobeyed so that he could be publicly insulted and called out. And so he responds by dissolving parliament and he actually imprisoned nine of the MPs who pulled this um, little stunt for their role in the protest. Now, dissolving parliament was not unheard of. This had happened before. There was precedent for doing it, but it puts you in a tricky situation. Um, and the biggest reason was the way that the... Um, English law had developed was he uh, the king cannot raise taxes and not I don't mean like the rate of taxes but cannot collect cannot you know gather the money raise the money that he would need to go do whatever he's going to do without the stamp of parliament so you can dissolve parliament sure but that just means you're not going to get any money from now on um, which is kind of a clever little built-in check and balance and but he does he he takes parliament out and this lasts for 11 years, hence the, uh, the name 11 Years Tyranny. So he's in this tricky situation. And as a result of not being able to raise any money and being basically poor <laughs> because he's, he's trying to do this on his own, he has to avoid war. 
with France and Spain. He can't get himself caught up into a, a um, conflict because he doesn't have any way to raise the money to pay for troops and to build ships and to go wage war. So he's like, okay, I'm going to dissolve parliament. And that necessarily means I got to go make nice with France and Spain and make sure nobody's attacking anybody. Um, also not super popular. People didn't like that either. And so he just kind of was dogged by lots of things just not going super well. And the thing that I find sort of ironic about all of this, and um, you'll see it even more as we go, but like we read like, okay, he dissolves parliament and like declares himself to be the only, the only king, the 11 years tyranny. And I think in my little American brain, okay, that's bad. Like you shouldn't dissolve parliament. That's never a good sign when some countries like, you know, they, they dissolve their legislative body. One person's like, I'm making the shot, calling the shots now. Not good. But then if you, if you look at it, it's like, well, the reason parliament was mad was because he wasn't persecuting Catholics enough. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I kind of don't know who to root for. <laughs> like, you know, I don't, I don't like that. He's trying to wrest power away from the you know, the, at least at the time, the closest equivalent to the voice of the people, but he was doing it because the voice of the people were like, wasn't it great when we were, you know, really just, (laughs) yeah. Can you keep pushing those Catholics out the window? We love that. Yeah, we love that. (laughs) Sort of a weird, like, um, um, like principle catch 22. Like, well, do I like the more democracy side of things? Or do, but, you know, or do I like the religious tolerance that's going on here? So, yeah, sort of a weird pickle that he gets himself in, but um, it was very serious. I mean, he had, he had angered Parliament, and this 11 years break was no joke. And he was, um, even at the time, and this is kind of weird to think about, like a king of England in the 1600s, people being like, oh, he's a tyrant, he has too much power. Um, but that was an idea that was, that was already extant like people were already saying oh this king has too much power and so that's really a shift from you know kind of the the unquestioning right of kings that was around well before magna carta and all that stuff and so people at the time were calling him in um, you know handbills that were going out and around and people were in the streets saying we've got a king who's out of control um and dissolving parliament made him no friends among the people Definitely to make him friends among the parliament that he that he kicked out, but it also just one last kind of final straw that turned the people of England against him. And there's a lot that I'm glossing over here, but suffice it to say, he just like I said, ev- kind of around every corner, he made himself less popular. He passed some tax that people didn't like, and then he tried to do some military thing in Denmark or whatever, and it totally failed. And people, I mean, he was just getting booed on every corner. Um, and that's not a great situation to be in as a kink, as we shall see. So as you can imagine, Charles, at this point, 1642, begins to fear for his life because it's not going very well with Parliament, no matter how many times he tries to put them in timeout. Or, you know, get his way. It's just not going very well. Um, so he flees with his family. They leave London and they go to the north. And Parliament continues to try to negotiate to Charles, but it's very fruitless. Nothing comes about. So 
decisively, they write up a list of 19 propositions that they expect to be met. And the propositions are very demanding. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll read some of them. Um, some examples of the propositions are Charles's private counsel, like his advisors, would all have to be approved by Parliament. They also asked that any matters concerning the public would need to be debated in Parliament and not counseled in private with the king and his advisors. The education of the king's children would be subject to parliamentary approval, so they would have Whoa. a say in how, how the children were educated. Yeah. This is a huge one. The king's children may not marry without consent of parliament. Wow. That must be a nod, I think, to James one, right? Trying to get Charles engaged to the Spanish princess. Yeah, and I mean, you can also see like the educating the king's children thing too, because the whole plan with the Jesuit plot and the gunpowder plot was, all right, we'll blow up James and then we'll take Elizabeth mm -hmm. and we'll make sure she's only getting Catholic teachings the whole time. And so they wanted avoid any like surreptitious you know some sneaky catholicizing of anybody behind you know we want to know what's being taught which again has echoes today people you know going to your school school board meeting and yelling about i want to know what you know are you are you like poisoning my child's mind um and same thing right like they're like we we don't want our next king to be getting secretly jesuitified you know with right right That's crazy definitely they also said that the House of Lords peers would need to be voted in by both houses of parliament. This is an interesting one because per my understanding, you've got the House of Lords and the House of Commons and the House of Commons is elected by the public and the House of Lords is appointed by the monarchy or by other people in the House of Lords. It's typically hereditary, you know, if you're the Duke of whatever yeah bathinghamshire upon avon upon towns <laughs> then <laughs> you inherit that title when your relative passes away and you inherit that and then you're inducted into the house of lords or you know maybe queen elizabeth says i appoint you duke of darkingham bun from something like that I could listen to 20 minutes of you making up fake English <laughs> place names, by the way. See them upon the Brigham Chambai the Sea. Crushing him on Thames. <laughs> yes, these are all real places. We're just reading them out, <laughs> not making them up. <laughs> so for the parliament here to say we need to approve any people going into the House of the Lords is definitely a check on the monarch's power because that's what they do is they appoint people into the peerage system. They give all these titles away when they need to make people happy. Um, and then another one that they said was, you know, we're not beating around the bush here. Laws against Jesuits and Catholics need to be strictly enforced, probably looking right at you, Queen who is sitting on the throne as a Catholic queen of England in a time period when Catholics weren't allowed. So it's a very demanding list and you will not be surprised to hear that Charles said, absolutely not. I'm not signing this. Um, so he didn't agree to it. And unfortunately that led to war. So now we come to the English civil war and it's, 
period of history. It's, itself, the English Civil War is technically three civil wars. There's the first one, they are called the First English Civil War, the Second English Civil War, and the Third English Civil War. Together, kind of back to back with little periods in between. And then together, the English Civil War also make up a larger series of civil wars in Scotland and Ireland and England. Those are known as the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. So there's just wars all around. Lots of wars. So Charles rejects the 19 propositions. And there are at this point two royalists who are backing Charles as a monarch and they're supporting him. And then you've got the parliamentarians who are saying, no, Charles is a bad guy, needs to be taken down, and we support Parliament. And both of those sides begin to build up armies. Charles finds most of his support in the rural areas of England, whereas Parliament found more support in the urban areas, especially London and I assume the other cities of England as well. And initially, a lot of the towns in England tried not to get involved. They didn't want to be a part of any military conflict or war. I think they probably honestly didn't really care who was ruling, you know, as long as taxes were still fine, then who cares? Um, But there wasn't really a way out of that because either Charles or Parliament was going to come knocking at your door and the military was going to show up. So pretty much everybody kind of had to pick a side in the end. And, you know, it is an important debate. It's at this point because you're kind of forced to choose the side between do you think that the king should be a tyrant yes or no you know that's an unfair way to phrase that but (laughs) it's probably the question that was getting thrown at them so you have to choose a side right you can't just say i'm neutral parliament itself interestingly enough was not monolithically opposed to charles and when charles convened his own quote-unquote oxford parliament in the beginning of the war, there were more members of the House of Commons and the House of Lords that went to his parliament than there were that went to the regular one. So he still had a lot of people who were supporting him in parliament. And even among, you know, his supporters and his enemies, there was a wide range of how people felt about it. You know, some people were probably like, Eh, the Catholic stuff I can deal with, but the taxes is too much, you know? Or then there were people who were just like, absolutely not, we don't need a king at all. This is the time to get rid of the king, maybe moving towards something more democratic, you know, who can say? Um, so yeah, that was that was kind of the status of where his enemies were. We would need to do probably a whole separate series about the battles of the English Civil Wars in order to get into the nuances and the power swings, the technological advantages of the time, or like the tactical strategies that were being used. And there's you can skim the Wikipedia article and tell that there are interesting stories to be read in each of those individual battles. It would just take too much time to talk about here. But I'm kind of disappointed that no one has made this into a show or like a movie or something, because I think it would be interesting to follow. Initially in the war, Charles and the Royalists have several decisive victories. And for the first few years in the eventual four years of the first civil war, it looks like the Royalists are winning. They win enough battles that it's kind of clear that 
they're going to emerge victorious. However, unfortunately, the tides turned back against them. And in the summer of 1645, there were two battles back to back in which the parliamentarians effectively destroyed Charles' armies. So at the end of 1645, it's clear that someone's going to win this war, but it's not Charles because he doesn't have an army. Mm. So Charles runs away. He seeks shelter with a Presbyterian Scottish army. And then unfortunately, they didn't give him very good shelter because they turned him over to Parliament. And at that point, he was thrown in prison. So after Charles was turned over by the Presbyterian Scottish Army to Parliament and he was thrown in prison, he was then tried and found guilty of high treason as, quote, a tyrant, a traitor, a murderer, and a public enemy, end quote. I don't know what murderer is referring to there because I didn't see any examples of him murdering anybody. Maybe they're going off of the fact that he had an army that killed people in the war. That might yeah, be what that means. Interesting. Yeah. It's, I still think it's so interesting to see the word tyrant there. Like tyrant, that feels right? Like, yeah. You know, in kind of the American myopia, like we invented that word when we co- told King George what for. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> but true. It's, yeah. But it's not. I mean, it's in, the English were having these kind of conversations already. And I mean, it, it goes back to Julius Caesar, right? Like kings who got too big for their riches or whatever, but that's just so I that kind of that kind of baffles me or not that doesn't baffle me it's fascinating that they were calling their kings tyrants like you have overstepped your bounds that just doesn't feel right but it's cool that mm-hmm. it was right and I love the poetry behind the word traitor mm-hmm. because you think of a traitor historically as being like somebody who goes against the king well this is the king and they're calling yeah. him a traitor I think that's He's very gone clever. against the people ostensibly right like right right and then public enemy is just juicy. I like that they talk about. <laughs> it feels like that feels like uh, something from like the show Twenty Four or something. I don't know. Yeah, kind of new agey. Yeah, very dramatic. Yeah. So Charles One shows up to the trial, and his hair and beard are very long, and this is because Parliament had dismissed his personal barber. And he refused to let anyone else come near him with a razor. That's uh, kind of spooky about, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, try as he might, though, unfortunately, it did not work as far as keeping <laughs> knives away from your head. Yeah, keeping he, his head <laughs> attached. <laughs> yeah. He was beheaded in front of the Palace of Whitehall, which is used to be in London. It doesn't exist anymore. And it's where Henry VIII, Bloody Mary, Elizabeth I, James I, and Charles I himself all lived. Nobody before this gang of monarchs lived in this house, and only a few monarchs after them lived there. So I think it's kind of a fun coincidence that we happen to talk about all these people recently. And not nice to be uh, beheaded in front of your house, I think. At the beheading, the crowd let out a moan, and according to one observer, it was, quote, a moan as I never heard before, and I desire I may never hear it again. Some of the crowd went up to the body, and they dipped their handkerchiefs in his blood as a memento. Hmm. Gross, but, you know, people do what they gotta do, I guess. 
And then I think out of respect, they sewed the head back onto the body before it was buried and his body was embalmed. And the commission refused to allow him to be buried in Westminster, excuse me, Westminster Abbey, which is where a lot of monarchs historically were buried. And so he was buried instead at Windsor Castle. And that's actually where Queen Elizabeth lives now. So Hmm. the monarchy for the past at least 100 years has, has lived in Windsor Castle. So that's the story of Charles I. Now that he's dead, Parliament has to figure out what's going to happen with the monarchy next. And they institute Oliver Cromwell, who was kind of like the head honcho of Parliament at the time. They put him in place as a, quote, Lord Protectorate of England. And that's a title that has not been used before, at least not in a really long time, I think. I think this is the first time it ever happened. And I think it's kind of like a made-up title that just (laughs) our leader who is not a king because we don't want to use the K word, you know? That's Oliver Cromwell. We talked actually about Oliver Cromwell in our series about the American Revolution when we talked about the Navigation Acts because Mm -hmm. that's now where our time periods have coincided. Right here with um, the end of Charles I's reign is coinciding with our very first inceptions of the american revolution across the ocean yeah so oliver cromwell uh rules as lord protector or governs or whatever you want to say for about 10 years in the meantime there's some sentiments floating around of, of support maybe for for undoing this whole oliver cromwell thing and people who supported charles the first are starting to look to charles the second is the son of charles the first and maybe he might be good to put on back on the throne. Mm. But that's that's a teaser trailer for a future episode. So the story of Charles I uh, is quite sad, honestly. I, I think it's a really tragic thing. And as far as England goes, they've made it pretty crystal clear how they feel about monarchs abusing their power, right? This is sending a message. Yeah, I mean, like you said, we don't want to... We're not even... We're going to take the guy out, put somebody else in who has a different title. Like you said, we don't want to use the K word. I mean, again, it feels like, hey, I thought we got credit for uh, America should get credit for this. Like we got to get rid of the tyrannical king and put in something Mm -hmm. more reasonable and reflective of the will of the people. And it's like this happened hundreds of years before, you know, and um, so it's it's really fascinating there, although kind of also as a a hint about what's coming um, there, this was not like some sort of democratic bliss that Oliver Cromwell led them through. There was a lot of um, conflict to this day. You know, people are going to spit after they say the name Oliver Cromwell in Ireland. He was like kind of a Mm. monster up there. And so um, it didn't solve all their problems. And then, like you said, there are people who are like, maybe we should go back to the old, the old King system. (laughs) Yeah. It's super interesting. And next time we are going to take a look at what happens when Oliver Cromwell dies and how Charles's two sons, Charles and James, start to look hungrily at the throne and what happened next to the English monarchy. The only footnote we have today is a nod to the word defenestrate which Race mentioned as the defenestration of Prague. 
Defenestrate is one of those delicious little words with an impractically narrow and specific meaning, as it means to push a person out of a window. We hope you enjoyed the episode today. Join us next time when we continue this series and find out what happened to Charles's sons, Charles II and James II, in the Glorious Revolution. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.